Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We are going to look at a rather large section of the Bible. We're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 8. It's a lot of text, but the Bible is the only thing, this is the only perfect moment in the whole service this morning is when you read God's Word. So let's enjoy it while we can. 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 1, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 8. Here we are introduced to Saul. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Ephiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, a handsome, a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on to the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Note is here because seeing is so important in this text. Good, Saul said to his servant, Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked him, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from my hand, the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned? Is it not to you, if not to you, and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited 
about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you this occasion, for this occasion from the time I said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When, Sam, when Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servants did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor, Three men going up to worship God at Bethel Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats and another three loaves of bread and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and, and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. I, for the last couple of months, I have been reading Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Uh, I have never read any of Jane Austen's books, uh, which is probably a sign of my faulty education. So I am reading this book. And uh, frankly, I am enjoying it only marginally. Um, Jane Austen was a keen observer of human beings. She is really good at poking fun at pretentious people. Uh, But my problem is that there is so much talking in this book. I should have known. It's about a man and his daughters. And they they just, they talk and talk and talk in this book. Uh, I have learned through reading this book that I don't like books where people talk and talk and talk. I'd much rather watch a uh, movie or read a book or watch a television show with a lot less talking. I want characters who do things, who are in action. Actually, my favorite type of character in anything that I see on a screen or in a book is the master planner. Uh, the, usually it's the villains who are the, the master planners, but I like it when the good guys make plans too. They, they need to rescue a hostage or they need to steal a computer with the nuclear codes or they need to figure out how to blow up the villain's lair. So they start with blueprints and they make plans, detailed plans, plans that encompass every possible scenario that use stopwatches and costumes and weapons and tools. Frederick Forsyth writes novels like this. Daniel Silva writes novels like this. Uh, Agatha Christie writes about people who do things like that. 
Uh, the television show Mission Impossible, and I suppose even the A-Team were television shows that when the plans came together, it was lovely to see, right? Well, uh, do you know that the Bible depicts God as a master planner? The scriptures represent him that way in the first place as, a, as a, our creator. He called the universe into existence, and it is the result of his wisdom, and it is astounding how the world works. Gigantic organisms, tiny organisms, uh, huge stars, uh, tiny in comparison planets, uh, all of it functions, even though it's broken by sin, it functions in such an astounding way. God's the master planner. But he's also a master planner in how he deals with people. You're supposed to recognize that in the pages of Scripture and seeing his ability to be the master planner, you're supposed to move to a greater position of confidence and trust in him. That's particularly true when we read about how God deals with the failures of his people, the Israelites. The Bible affirms to us that God is, that God is a master planner. He is fully wise and fully good And we should trust him because of it. Think with me about God's master planning in the book of of Samuel here. We're walking through this book slowly here, and we've come to the point uh, where the people want a king. I've suggested to you that, that God shepherds his people through his anointed king. That's the theme of the book of Samuel. So this book is about his care for his people. But last week we read in chapter 8 about how they rejected God as their king. They didn't want him as king. They want a human king. They don't want God as their king anymore. Now, what's, what's silly about this to me is that God has been preparing them for a king. David is he's getting ready to bring David onto the scene, this, this king that God calls, the Bible calls, a man after God's own heart. But the people want a king now. And they don't want a king after God's own heart. They want a king like all the other nations. There's a conflict in this story between what they want and what God knows they need. How does God respond to that request? He gives them a king. But what we're going to find out is that the king that God gives them is at the same time a man capable of delivering them from the Philistines and a capable of serving as a source of discipline for them for the rejection of God's ways. One man, this man named Saul. Saul, by the way, means asked. They asked God for a king and they gave him asked. Here he is, Saul. He has at the same time in the, in the plan of God, in the wisdom of God, a source of their deliverance and a source of their discipline. He's the king that, that they need to provide for their current struggles and to lead them to the next king, God's great king, David. It's, it's odd. Again, we have this conflict here between what the people want and what the people need. They want a king just like all the other nations. They need a king who is after God's own heart. So what what does God do? God gives them Saul, who is kind of like the king they want, but not quite. And he's the sort of king that's supposed to change them so that they will want what they need. Imagine it like this. Let's say um, the Israelites here, what they really need, they're dehydrated. They really need water, cool, clear water. But the Israelites instead have come before God and they said, you know what, God, we want nachos. Bring us nachos. 
That's what we want. So God gives them nachos. Really, really salty nachos. I mean, he pours the salt on their nachos. So as they eat and eat and eat, you know what they say? We're really thirsty. You know what we want? We want some water. So here we're going to talk not about salt on their nachos, but Saul on the throne. That's what's going to happen here in this passage as it's unfold, as it's unfolding here. This is a story that is told. It's supposed to increase your confidence in the master planning and wisdom of God. Look what he does in response to his rebellious, needy people. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't abandon them. He provides for them exactly what they need. They need deliverance and they need discipline and he gives it to them. I want you to see both the goodness and the wisdom of God here. Look at how he deals with his people. And then I want you to consider whether or not he is doing the same thing in your life. Is there a difference between what you want and what God knows that you need? And how does God respond? And what does God provide for you? Chapter 9 is at the center of uh, two or three chapters with two overlapping themes. We're going to talk about one of them chiefly today, and we're going to talk about the other one next week. Now, the theme that we're going to talk about next week is we're going to talk about Saul's inadequacy for the job. He is um, the king that God gives them, but he's not adequate for the job, and in his inadequacy is a source of discipline. It's great. We're going to talk about it next week on Palm Sunday. It'll be perfect because on Palm Sunday, it's the day when Jesus was presented to the nation. And some people recognized it. They saw Jesus coming into the city and they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, your uh, daughter Jerusalem, your king comes riding to you on a donkey. Most people, though, didn't understand. By the end of the week, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Saul is the king the Israelites wanted but didn't need. Jesus is the king they didn't want but desperately needed. We'll talk about that more next week. A little bit today, though. The second theme, though, that we're going to talk about today mostly is God's providential kindness in providing for his people's needs. Even though they've rejected him, he is going to provide for them. We're going to stick close to the text today. We're going to spend most of our time in the ancient world. But along the way, I want to talk with you about how God's, how, how he wisely and sovereignly provides for what his people need, even when they reject him. Now, there's two main sections in this passage that we're going to talk about. The first one is the introduction of Saul. So we're going to introduce Saul first. Saul's one of the three main characters in the book of Samuel, and he functions chiefly as a foil, or chiefly in contrast to David. Sometimes Saul gets treated by Bible students as a rather flat character. They, he's the villain, and just the villain. But he's much more complex than that. Actually, real people are always more complex than that. Uh, Saul's introduced here with his family line. There was a man, a Benjamite, and then it gives, goes back four generations. That's the same way that the Bible introduced us to Samuel. It's the same way the Bible introduced us to Gideon. And here's four characteristics of Saul that are found in this text. I think are important, and they will be as in the weeks as we unfold Saul's life a little bit. Uh, first of all, the Bible tells us that Saul looks like a king. He looks like a king. Text says that he is handsome and tall. In fact, his height is emphasized in this text. It's here in chapter 9, it's here in chapter 10. He is head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite. He looks like a king. Uh, Peter Leithart points out how 
uh, the book of Samuel is kind of tied together with this reference to heads. Uh, Samuel, no razor touched Samuel's head, the text says. He was a Nazarite. Saul is a head taller. Absalom was brought down by his beautiful head of hair. I don't relate to that at all. Uh, Goliath lost his head. right? So there's this theme is kind of running through the Bible. Saul is tall. Now, there's promise here. The word handsome is used in the Bible to describe Joseph, to describe the baby Moses, to describe David, and to describe Absalom. It's wonderful. He looks like a leader. And he's, he's apparently in very good company with Joseph and Moses and David. That may be why, I don't want to be shallow, I don't want to be too shallow here, but, but Saul's handsomeness may be why these young girls that are going down to draw water talk to him so much. This is not culturally acceptable for young girls to talk to somebody like, to, to a strange man like this. But they, they just chatter away because he's so dreamy. <laughs> Actually, while we're talking about this, we, we should think about these. This, is, uh, this story is so layered. It's, it's incredible how the Bible... I'm trying to explain it today, and I feel somewhat like... You know when you get home from the grocery store and you want to make one trip to your house... So you take like 57 bags in each hand and you get in your house and by the time you set the bags down, your fingers are falling off because you have no circulation. That's how I feel in this passage. Okay, so think about this here. In the Bible, what happens up to this point whenever somebody goes to a well and sees women drawing water? What happens? A marriage. That's what happens, Right? It's how Isaac got his wife, how Jacob got his wife, how Moses got his wife at the well. If you're looking for a wife, I suggest that won't work. But um, <laughs> happens. And here Saul sees girls going to a well. He doesn't get a bride. Instead, he gets a kingdom. The other thing that happens with these young girls, this is another this layer, is, is the girls say to him, when you enter the town, you'll find, verse 13, him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Do you know what we're going to find in a few weeks in chapter 13? That's what costs Saul the kingdom, is that he wouldn't wait for Samuel to come to bless the sacrifice. These people in Ramah know better than Saul does. Hmm. Well, Saul looks like a king. Well, that's great. Except that when, Samuel is, uh, when David is anointed in 1 Samuel 16, look what it says. God says to Saul, uh, Samuel, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There can be a difference between what people want and what people need. All right, let's move on here. The text tells us, secondly, Samuel is an honorable son. He's an honorable son. He, he looks like a king, and he's an honorable son. He's not just a flat villain. As the story opens, Kish has lost his donkeys. So he sends his son Saul, who is probably about this time about 40 years old or so, out to look for them. And Saul goes. He's about his father's business. Not only is he about his father's business, but after three days he starts to worry about what his father might be feeling, the anxiousness that his father might have about his own absence. The first words he speaks are about concern for his father in, in, in the Bible here. Think about this. Relationships between fathers and sons in Samuel are not good. 
Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, that was not good. Samuel and his sons, that was not good. David and Absalom, that was not a good relationship. But here we, we've got a, a son who genuinely cares about his father and is about his father's business. There are times in the Bible where Saul is loyal and sensitive and, and, and concerned genuinely about other people. Now, third, though, when we go negative, the text tells us that Saul is an ineffective leader. He's an ineffective leader. He looks like a king, but he doesn't lead like a king. Think with me about these donkeys again here. On the one hand, donkeys are associated with royalty. This may be a clue that the text is giving us here. Donkeys are royal animals. Your king comes to you riding on a donkey, Zechariah said. So Saul is out looking for royal animals, and he instead gets the royal crown. That's pretty good. Except, in, in the Bible, Israel's kings and Israel's leaders are associated with shepherding. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. David is a shepherd. They protect their sheep. They love their sheep. They care for their sheep. Uh, they find their sheep when they're lost. But Saul loses donkeys. And he can't find them. After three days, he can't find them. And after three days, he gives up on finding them. Saul doesn't seem to be a very good shepherd. And then when they're in Zuf here, uh, which is the region in which Samuel's hometown is, Ramah is located there, um, it's the servant who takes the initiative, right? The slave. He wants to go talk to the prophet. He has the money to pay for it. It's his idea. It's not Saul's. There's a leader in this text, but it's not Saul. He looks like a king, but he doesn't act like one. He's a passive, he's an ineffective leader. That's going to come back to haunt the people. In fact, it's Saul's passivity that is, that is going to trouble the whole nation of Israel. Now finally here, and related to his passivity, Saul seems to be spiritually dull. He's spiritually dull. You can see that in his, here with how unfamiliar he is with Samuel. Samuel's been leading the nation for decades. He's been on traveling around, prophesying. He's been leading the people. And Saul doesn't even seem to know who he is. I mean, he goes up to Samuel and says, Hey, do you know where Samuel's at? He doesn't know his name. Do you know where the seer's house is? That's well, me. Why doesn't he know that? Why doesn't he think that the prophet would be useful in helping him find the donkeys? Why does he think that, uh, that the prophet is only after it, this to get rich and not to be God's representative? Why, why is Saul so unfamiliar with the nation's prophets? We're going to talk about more this next week why Saul is an adequate king. But, but can I uh, warn you here, uh, don't fall into this this uh, trap that the Israelites fall in. Saul looks really good, and, and, and the king, the people are glad to crown him king next, next week. They're glad to crown him king, but, the, but they're falling into a trap. He, here the trust issue comes up. Are you gonna, will we trust in the goodness and the wisdom of God? Uh, have you ever heard that expression that we use this sometimes? Uh, when people are trying to spin, spin the news, they, they mock, we mock people who are spinning the news by, by asking this question. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe me? Are you going to believe your own lying eyes? You ever heard that question? I'm going to tell, tell, tell you how what you see is not the truth. I'm going to spin the truth so you see it from a different angle. 
What's interesting in this story, we have Saul, the very handsome, very tall potential king. And God says, I want you to believe me and not your eyes. The reason I want you to believe me and not your eyes is because I see better than you do. I see better in your circumstances what you need than you do. My eyes are clearer than your eyes are, and I want you to trust me in the midst of them. My sovereignty and my goodness. It's interesting. Can can you understand how the first thing on this list would kind of obscure the third and fourth thing on the list? How, How being handsome and tall would make the people maybe forget about his spiritual insensitivity or his passivity as a leader? Can you understand how you would be fooled that way? What happens a lot, I think, in relationships? Proverbs 31, there's a statement about the noble wife. It says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful or being handsome. Certainly there's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder, do you have eyes to see beneath those external things? Um, It's the woman after God's own heart the man who fears the Lord, who is to be uh, praised. Some of you, you want to get married. You're desperate to get married. But your, your vision go, looks at potential mates about one-eighth of an inch into their, who they are. That's all you see. You can't see pers- fast, past the first eighth of an inch of who they are when they appear. There's nothing laudatory or wonderful about finding your spouse unattractive. I mean, that's not, a, that's not praiseworthy. But I wonder if you're not looking very carefully. Looking, looking with eyes that are external only. That haven't gone deeper. Money can be deceptive too in this same way, can it? Um, we want more money. Money will meet our needs. Money will satisfy our longings. More money would solve all of my problems. Having lots of money looks really good. But you know that having lots of money blinds you to spiritual realities? That's why... It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Loving money leads to all kinds of evil. Some of you, you're tempted, you fall into this temptation to think, I wish that I had more money so I could give my kids more. I want to give my kids the clothes that they want to wear. I want to give my kids the vacations that their friends at school seem to be going on all the time. Or I want to give my kids their own room or the next uh, video game system. I want to, want to be able to give them more. I wish I had more to give them more. Do you know, though, huh, why are you hoping? There's nothing wrong with giving your kids good things and blessing them with them. But you know, the Bible says things, money, can be a source of spiritual blindness. Why would you wish that on your children? Why would you want that? them. Be careful. Be careful what you are trusting in. God's goodness, God's mercy, God's wisdom to the people. <coughs> That's the introduction to Saul. Now, we need to talk secondly about here how God provides for the people, how God provides for the people. Notice here that God is working to give the Israelites a leader like Saul, that's the one they want, instead of him, and yet he's going to use him to meet the need that they have for security. They need, secure, they need a leader. God's good enough to provide it for them. Verse 16 says, 
He's going to deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. That is very kind of God to give them a leader who will do that. And now what I want, you to, what I want to show you is in this passage six ways that God providentially works to give them Saul. That's the emphasis of chapter 9. God's working to provide for them. First, he sets the donkeys loose. He sets the donkeys loose. So here we have it again, those donkeys. They show up. They're lost in the passage, but apparently they show up in every paragraph of this whole story. Uh, um, Kish thinks the donkeys are lost, but you know what? God had said to Samuel, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Lost donkeys, God's mission. Right? God sets the donkeys loose to put Saul in the right place at the right time. Um, Everything is on, in God's control. Ephesians 1.15, God works everything out according to the counsel of his own will, apparently even lost donkeys. Remember that the next time you can't find your cell phone. I don't know if God is leading you to a prophet, I doubt it, but, but cell phones are not outside his purview. Right? These, these donkeys are the means by which God brings Samuel and Saul together. Now second here, God set Saul and Samuel's schedule together. He put their schedule together. There's a phrase of coincidence in this passage that is rare in the Bible, but it shows up two or three times in this passage. Verse 11, it says, As they were going up to the hill, to the town, they met. As they were, they met. Verse 14, They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel. So there's this, this uh, concatenation, these coincidences of schedule. They just happened to meet the young women. They just happened to meet Samuel. God is working this out in their schedule. My father used to have a sign in his office. Uh, maybe some of you have seen something like this. It said, A coincidence is a miracle for which God chooses to remain anonymous. And here's these coincidences, God bringing them together. Now third here, Saul, uh, God prepared Samuel to receive Saul. God prepared Samuel to receive Saul. He told the prophet that Saul was coming. And in verse 17 he says, Here's the man. This is the man. And that phrase is used in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant. It's used kind of in John 19. Here's the man about the Lord Jesus. Here he is. And the story goes into great detail, does it not? Oh, great detail about what Samuel did to prepare for Saul. He saved the best seat at the banquet for him. He saved the best cut of meat for him. Samuel is ready. Samuel's on board with what God is doing. He is committed to God's plans, and that includes Saul. Now, fourth here... God gave three signs for Saul. God gave three signs for Saul. In order to confirm that Samuel was indeed anointing him king, there's three events described in chapter 10. Two men with a message about the donkeys. Donkeys, donkeys, donkeys. Then there's three men who are going up to worship, and they give Saul a king's portion of the sacrifice, two loaves of bread. He gets the best cut of meat, and he gets the loaves. Then third, there's the sign of the prophets. Samuel describes it. It all comes true. Um, then he says in verse 7, After you see these signs, do whatever your hand finds to do, do, for God is with you. Be assured, you passive, ineffective leader, be assured that God is with you. Act. Now fifth here, God provides the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you, Samuel says to him. You'll prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. 
how grateful we are for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been active in the lives of leaders through the Old Testament here. He's promised to us in the New Testament. I don't think that what's happening here is the same thing that happened in the book of Acts. But the Spirit is the sign that Saul is on God's team. He's God's anointed servants, servant. Saul has joined in God's cause. Now sixth here, related, God works here to protect his people. God providentially works to protect his people. God gave them Saul to protect the people from the Philistines, but actually God is at work too here to protect the people from Saul. Saul is an agent of discipline, but he's not, he's not everything to the people. The people want a king like the other nations. Saul is not going to be a king like all the other nations. How do we know that? Because over and over and over again in the passage, God says to uh, Samuel and refers to the, the Israelites as my people. He's king, but they're my people. They're still my people. I, th- they still belong to me. I still am going to protect them. I'm going to give them Saul. He's going to deliver them to the Philistines, but they're mine, my people. He uses a strange word to describe Saul in verse 16. It says, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. That's a strange word. It doesn't say king. You would expect it to say king, but it says ruler instead. Uh, The word ruler is used most often in the Bible when there was a king who was getting old who anointed his son to be co-king with him. The king says, I'm getting too old. I can't do this job anymore. I need a co-king. And he's going to be the ruler. I'll be king. He'll be the ruler. What's happening in this passage? God is king. Saul is the co-king. He does this because he's a good God and he's still protecting his people. Now what does this story tell us here? We think about all these details in this very layered story when we trace how God responds to the people for a king It's a request that is a rejection of God himself. What do we learn? It's good news. Here it is. I think this passage is teaching us that God is more faithful to you than you are to him. God is more faithful to you than you are to him. God is more faithful to his wandering, distracted, confused, faithless people than they are to him. And in his faithfulness, God gives his people what they need. He gives them a king to deliver and discipline them and lead them to the ultimate king. We waver, we wander, God provides because he's good and he's wise. It's good news, it's absolutely necessary news. It is Christian news. It's gospel-shaped news. And I want to tell you why. I want to give, finish by giving you two reasons why recognizing that God is more faithful to you than you are to him is so important. Two reasons. First of all, it corrects the idea that a relationship with God is a 50-50 proposition. Most people have the idea in their mind that a relationship with God is a 50-50 proposition. This is, uh, if they think about God at all, this is what most people think. I do my part, God does his part. If you don't do your part, then it makes sense why God wouldn't do his part. If I'm a good person, if I meet God at least halfway, then it will work out and it will be okay and and God will take care of me. There's two problems with that idea, though. First of all, no human being has ever kept his or her part. It's not even possible. When I say that God is more faithful to you than you are to him, I'm not describing a possible scenario. I am describing reality. 
We don't even meet the minimum standard of faithfulness on our own. The Bible says, first of all, that you're a creature and he's the creator and all human creatures have failed to respond to our creator as we ought to. Sometimes when I think about and thinking through my sermons, it's, helped me to t- it's helpful for me to talk to somebody about it. And this week, the unfortunate victim was my daughter, Jenna. So we were talking about this passage and, and uh, we were talking about some of the pros and cons, some of the difficulties in understanding it. And she said, well, it kind of sounds a little bit like Stella. Our dog. Stella makes into the sermons more often than Moses, I think. So Jenna said to me, she said, you know, Stella, she sometimes gets up on the counter and gets food off the counter she's not supposed to. Yeah, every now and then she does. And Stella's really pushy. If, you, if I sit down in a chair to read a book, Stella sees me, she'll run over, and I'll be sitting there like this, and she'll take her snout under my elbow and push and push and push until I reach down to pet her. And Jenna said, you know, you feed Stella, you take her for walks, give her a house, you pay a lot of money to take her to the vet. Do you think she should treat you better than this? Do you think she, would, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't climb up on the counters and get things? Do you think she wouldn't push your arm like that and be so pushy and demanding about being pet? You would think that. Having a conversation with my daughter. And I'm thinking about parenting. I didn't say that at the time. I didn't say anything about it at the time. I said, I said, that is a good observation. You would think that a dog would be more faithful to her master. Because that's the way it's supposed to be. In the Bible we read about this. God is so kind. He has provided so much. For every breath you take, you are in God's debt. You would think that human creatures would be more faithful to the Creator than we are. But... We're not. It's not a 50-50 proposition. You can't even produce 50. The other problem with this 50-50 proposition is that it always sells God short. He is always more generous than you are inclined to believe He is. It's interesting, this difference, when the Bible talks about God's justice, it talks about God's justice differently than it talks about God's mercy. When the Bible talks about God's justice, it talks about God's justice being specific and exacting and measured. If you could think about it this way, you could say it this way. For every three ounces of rebellion, there is exacting three ounces of justice. God's justice is perfectly fair and perfectly measured. But His grace, on the other hand, is lavish. It's without measure. He is just to exacting degrees but he is downright prodigal in his grace and his kindness. He throws away the scales entirely with his kindness and he lavishes blessing on people. He is more faithful to you than you are to him, than you have any hope of ever being. And, and that should correct this error of thinking that if we do a little, then God will do a little too. He, he's more faithful to you than you are to him. Now, second here. Knowing that God is more faithful to you than you are to him, it corrects this 50-50 proposition, and it also teaches us to anticipate God's goodness. It teaches us to anticipate God's goodness, even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't live up to his standards, when you don't live up to your standards, when you don't live up to your mother-in-law's standards. Christian people are those who are on the lookout for the generous grace of God. We expect it, we search for it, because God is more faithful to us than we are to him. 
He protects His people. He provides for His people even when they're being foolish. The Israelites don't deserve a king. They don't deserve a king at all. They don't deserve a deliverer. They don't deserve security. But over and over and over again, in the failure of God's people, it is another opportunity for God to display His grace. And when you understand that, you start to look for it. You start to anticipate it. You look for it in the midst of suffering. Suffering that's painful. It's difficult or that's confusing. God is, God is, is, is about the business of doing good because he is more faithful to us than we are to him. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is in the book of Joel. And, and, and Joel had told the people, or the prophets had warned the people, if you disobey God, if you continue down this path, a locust plague is going to come. And it comes in the book of Joel and devastates the whole land. And Joel calls the people to repent, and God offers this promise to them. He says, if you repent, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. As if he owes them. As if, as if a, a God owes them for this discipline that he's sent to them. You would think that God, if I were God, this is what I would say. I would say to the people, oh, I want you to come back. Please repent. Please repent. Come back to me. But you know what? The next few years are going to be kind of lean because... You, were, you did rebel against me. It's kind of your fault here. It's going to be difficult. They come back and God says, oh, I'm going to repay you for those years. Those years that you brought devastation to yourself by your disobedience. I'm going to repay you for them. God's generosity. Or what about the promise? We quote this a lot, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's where suffering comes. God is more faithful to you than you are to him, so you anticipate his goodness even in the midst of suffering. The ultimate guarantee of this is the cross, isn't it? While the people were in rebellion against God, God gave them the king they wanted that would prepare them for the king they needed in this passage. Their rebellion against God didn't overturn or overwhelm the commitment of God to provide for his people. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners in rebellion against God, Christ died for us. Think about it. Paul is writing Romans. He wrote this letter to people that were probably alive when Christ was crucified. They were alive. They knew nothing of Jesus. And Paul says, you were still sinners and Christ died for you. Uh, He who did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, how will you not along with him give us all things? The cross is the measure of the generosity and the faithfulness of God. Actually, it's the measure of the faithlessness of his people too. Why did Jesus die? Because we are so faithless that we need a sin bearer to suffer in our place. That's true. Why did Jesus die? Because God is so faithful that he keeps his promises to rescue his people. He's more faithful to you than you are to him which is why we trust him. It's why we have confidence in him. He's the master planner. He can produce something. He has produced something that is infinitely better, more mysterious and wonderful than anything that Agatha Christie wrote or that the A-team planned. He takes everything into account. He always gives us just what we need. That's why we trust in him. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this story about Saul the king, this man who had such promise and, and then he, he failed. Father, thank you for, your, for how you kindly and graciously provided for the people of Israel when they rejected you. It gives us courage and comfort because we often find our pla- ourselves in a place of turning from you or being angry with you or questioning and challenging you. Thank you that you are more faithful to your people than they are to you. To, you are more faithful to me than I am to you. You demonstrated your faithfulness on the cross. You graciously provide for us Teach us, Father, to anticipate your goodness, to trust you, even when what we want turns out to be a disaster. Thank you for your mercy. You are wise and you are good. We have confidence in you. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen.